From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you from Beijing, I'm He Yang. Good to have you join us. Catering consumption is apparently going to another level. A recent report found that the development of catering business has undergone a K-shaped recovery. What does that mean? What are the new trends in the catering and restaurant sector? And we share with you what's made us happy this week in Roundtable's Happy Place. For today's program, I'm joined by. Pearl in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. First on today's show, a recent report found that China's catering consumption is moving towards a so-called fourth consumption era, which means consumers prefer practical experiences and localized flavors. And there's a lot more to it. So let's take a look at. Some of the figures of the catering business right now, and、um, what is this recent report published by Food and Beverage Industry Media Platform Canyon88.com has to offer? Yes,、um, at present the domestic consumer market has shown the characteristics of the fourth consumption era, and consumers also show several major consumption preferences. Maybe I should explain what the fourth consumption era actually is. This is It refers to a shift in consumer behavior that focuses on experiences and values rather than just products and services. We can go take a little bit more of a deep dive into this later, but according to the figures of the catering industry in 2023, the domestic economy is gradually recovering, and this includes the catering、um, consumption. According to data from the National Bureau of Statistics, in the first quarter of 2023, China's GDP reached 28.5 trillion yuan. That's about four trillion dollars. And from January to April 2023, the national catering revenue was 1,588.8 billion yuan. 
that's $224 billion, um, a, a year-on-year increase of 19.8% there. The economic recovery is accelerating month by month, and the catering industry has become a reliable means of driving economic growth. Also, compared to industries such as automobiles and real estate, the catering industry took up a relatively lower percentage of China's GDP, 1.58%. But as a key area for promoting consumption, benefiting people's livelihoods and stabilizing employment, the catering industry is reflecting the economic recovery and has great significance for expanding the domestic demand. Therefore, promoting the sustained recovery of the catering market is a top priority for industries overall. Finally, in this context, the trend of domestic catering consumption is gradually returning to simplicity and excessive marketing is no longer a universal means of attracting consumers by catering brands. The simplicity, pragmatism and localization of the fourth consumption era is beginning to emerge. Oh, wow. Some big words and big numbers. All <laughs> yeah, there's quite a lot of complicated <laughs> Josh. Here, right? Yes, it's really interesting. And I suppose for the average person like myself, after the pandemic restrictions have been scrapped at such, and then the first thing you kind of want to do is just to go out and go out for a nice meal or the stuff you can't cook at home. I think that is probably one of the first or easier sectors to recover as such. Pearl, Mm. after hearing all these numbers and, you know, looking at what's going on here in China, what's your idea of, um, you know, the catering business these days? Well, if you look at the growth uh, in consumption levels in China, it goes hand in hand with the, the growing economy. In the country, I mean, China's economy has been on an upward trajectory for, uh, I think, for the past few years, and so it makes sense that people do have a disposable income and they are able to go out and spend their money in the way that they feel, and uh, also the restraints that were imposed by COVID nineteen seem to be uh, lifting now. Consumers are more able to free up their money or free up their spending and uh, able to look at what they prefer and what they like and then use their money wisely. So I think it makes sense to me. Yeah, this strikes a chord with me when I think about what going out for a meal means for me as a Chinese person, let's say 30 years ago when I was a little kid, as opposed to now. And I think there is this interesting change in the mindset of average citizens in this country. That is, when back in the day, 30 years ago, going out for a meal was a big deal. And sometimes um, you had to wait in long queues because there weren't even that many restaurants to start with. And people didn't have that much disposable income to go out for a meal, something as simple as that. When you look at today, a young person could be struggling with rent, but that doesn't stop that person from maybe buying, let's say, a cup of milk tea from his or her favorite beverage shop. And there is this change in the perception of eating out or, you know, buying a cup of milk tea as such. And it's really just no longer that much of a big deal for people. So I think it reflects some of the bigger things that are going on in our economy. And increasingly, China wants to become more of a consumption-driven economy as opposed to 
otherwise. So. Yes, that's a little bit more of the background of consumption in this country, of the hospitality and catering sector. Josh, you mentioned the fourth consumption era, and this is a, a sociological term that、yeah. was originally devised by a Japanese sociologist. So, could you? Drill a bit deeper for us、mm. and、uh, explain what exactly do we mean by we're entering this new era, the fourth one of consumption. Sure, absolutely. When whenever I'm wrestling with concepts like this, I think it's really important to look at it chronologically. Maybe that's because I studied and used to teach history, but I think that we can't talk about. And explain the fourth consumption era without quickly talking about the previous ones, right? So, as the name, yeah, as the name suggests, there were three before it. And the first consumption era, which is basically pre-industrial revolution, this is characterized by things like、um, subsistence living, where people produced what they needed to survive. It's more about survival. There was actually very little trade or commerce as we today understand, and most goods were produced locally, and people would often live off their own goods.、Um, there are still Societies around the world that could be considered to still be in that consumption era. The second consumption era is all about the industrial revolution.、Um, so this saw the rise of mass production, factories,、um, goods that are produced on a, a massive scale and then distributed to a much wider market. And then this also is coupled with things like the growth of cities,、um, rising middle class. Um, and things like this, and also an economic shift to things like、um, industrial economies rather than agrarian, like the first one. Agrarian being basically producing, farming your own goods. The third one is usually considered、um, post World War Two. So this is another era that is characterized by a focus on consumer goods and mass consumption. So the rise of advertising. Um, the rise of consumerism, people buying more goods than before,、um, an economy that shifted from manufacturing to also services,、um, with people working in offices and a shift to service industries as well. Now, the fourth consumption era, where we are now, is more characterized on a focus on experiences and values, which is pretty abstract, if you ask me,、um, and I think that. It's still a bit complex, and I think the line between, in my opinion, anyway,、um, as a non-expert, the line between the the third and the fourth is still a bit blurry. Maybe that's because we're going into it, arguably, and that's possibly why it's a bit blurry. But this era is driven by obviously technological advancements,、uh, e-commerce, a desire for personalization and uniqueness,、um, and yeah, a, an economy that again is putting more emphasis on. Service-based models, so pretty complex. Maybe not. Maybe it's pretty easy to understand, <laughs> but that's as clear an explanation as I can give you. And that's very much appreciated. And that's what these theorists and academics and researchers why they exist for a reason. That is to make a simple situation more complicated for us. Well, but there is definitely merit from what you just said, Josh. I think for just looking at today's Chinese society, a lot of people are willing to pay for a good. Dining experience, but what I find to be kind of interesting here is that, according at least to this report, it's saying that people aren't really、um, that they're kind of over the 
excessive brand premiums and they focus more on a simple and shared consumer experience. They want the food to be good and um, they're going back to simplicity as such. And uh, I know it's probably very much a generalization, no matter how we look at this, when it's all these theorized um, trends that some of these experts are coming up with. But I just find that to be kind of countering what I see in reality to some extent, you know, like a, a lot of people are still willing to pay for those excessive marketing, internet famous restaurants and milk tea shops as such. And uh, I just find there's a little bit of a gap between what I see and uh, what's being reported here. I wonder if you have these kind of feelings or shared observations in that sense. Well, for me, I think there is uh, a change that we are seeing. When you look, for example, at what health decisions people are making, they are likely to go for safe food. When they look at meals, they go for more healthier meals. And uh, they like to go to restaurants that offer them those healthier meals. And uh, I mean, if you look at today's generation, the younger generation, the consumers seemingly have five preferences, visible health, low cost happiness, taste stimulation, sense of escape, and dining and experience. And they show a focus on food ingredients, cost effective and experience. That is what they focus on uh, mainly. And um, when you look at um, just recently, China has started importing avocados from many African countries. And avocados, as we know, people consider avocados to be healthy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that means there's a demand for avocados here amongst uh, Chinese consumers. And uh, you are starting to also see restaurants and uh, places that sell beverages. They sell maybe avocado smoothies. And I've tasted some of them and they are delicious. And also what has impacted people's uh, way of choosing what they eat as we mentioned just now, is the the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, I saw a research that was done by uh, Deloitte in the UK that said that they found that people, as uh, the restrictions are being lifted, people are going for uh, food that will offer them safety and also ingredients that have uh, that are more healthier, and uh, but also the retailers or the the caterers have also adapted to this situation because now the demand is for safe food. So what they are doing is also doing their own research, finding out what um, consumers are, are looking for in this new era post COVID, mm-hmm. and uh, so there are some people are uh, offering boxed food instead of uh, open buffets because open buffets are considered to be unhealthy now people are scared you know they fear that they might catch something from uh, just an open buffet that everyone dips in dips their fingers in you know to pick up food so there are those considerations that are being made all around whether it's consumers or the caterers that are offering food to people, as well as supply chains. You have to now think of uh, where you source your food, where you source your fresh produce. Some people are now looking at, according to this uh, research by Deloitte, some 
caterers are now looking at sourcing more fresh produce from uh, their localities rather than looking maybe to import products because when you look at what happened during COVID, a lot of exports uh, uh, activity was uh, impacted by COVID and and lockdowns. So now to ensure that there's steady supply of uh, food products, they are now looking at their local farmers mm-hmm. and um, other places that are nearer to them so that they ensure that food is readily available for their consumers. And is that Deloitte paper looking at the global market or just China? This was looking specifically at the UK. Oh. So I'm just doing that comparison so that you can see that there is a change, even if it's happening here in China, but other countries are also facing similar trends as they look at life after COVID. Yes, and it's always good to sort of have the global picture in mind and see if there are some similarities and differences. One thing you mentioned earlier about the avocado craze, it certainly hit China as well. We've been through that for a few years by now. And that little fruit, is avocado a fruit? I suppose it is. Yeah, it, it, it yeah. is a fruit. Yes. And, and it's really it's considered a fruit. Yeah, yes. and it's really funny that sometimes people it's don't like agree tomatoes. with it. They're also considered yeah. fruits. Can it be long to two categories? Anyhow, so, you know, the avocado, it's almost like a signature fruit for the middle-income family as such, and uh, and it's been <laughs> attached to, you know, some of the urban hipsters is what they like as well. It could be put on everything by the sound of it. And then, yeah, it's here in China as well. Yeah, and also this uh, so-called K-shaped recovery or development for the restaurant sector, you know. I, I think the k sh- the letter K sort of um, signifies that, you know, it's not an even recovery equally distributed Mm. for everyone, obviously not. And then there are some winners and businesses aren't really doing that well. Don't really (laughs) want to put the big L word on those folks uh, forehead like that. So um, Josh, do you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, well, I mean, just to piggyback off that, I think that also the fourth consumption era does have the potential to increase inequality. And it's not just that certain specific businesses will lose out, but actually there's the potential for an increase in inequality all all round, um, a bit more widespread inequality, because um, of course, those who can afford to personalized and unique experiences sounds great, but not everybody can actually afford that. Um, and not everybody may have access to that. And so I guess that those who can afford to pay for these personalized and unique experiences, they're going to have a big advantage. And it could it could lead to a widening wealth gap and um, social stratification. I, I'm not sure if that's necessarily the case. I think that um, greater personalization and customization has the potential to be better if it's done correctly, because what it what that basically means is that there's greater control, right? There's an ability to control what, if we're talking about um, the food, the catering industry, for example, specifically, there's a, a greater opportunity to control the amount of calories, to control the right amount of foods, to make sure that there's less waste, actually. But actually, there's a risk of waste as well. And that's going to have an effect on the environment, if you care about that at all. And also yes, um, a lot of people. Yeah. Um, 
but it's really difficult to say whether it will or not have a worsening effect on things like waste and on things like inequality. It's too soon to say, actually. Yeah, but but that's definitely, I think, an important area to keep our eyes on because um, sometimes we only see the immediate wins of people. And what about those who are losing, falling through the cracks along the way? And I think it's important to sort of have our attention on those areas, the aspect of things as well. And Pearl, do you see this kind of K-shaped recovery in catering and restaurants as a sector? Well, what I I would say what's visible right now is that, yes, you can see that uh, there are businesses that are doing better uh, because of what they are offering to consumers. And some consumers are picky in what they prefer. And so if they prefer high quality food, then they have to pay for that. I don't agree. I mean, the K-shape shape trend suggests that you can get low prices as well as high quality products i mean i <laughs> Does don't that I ever don't, happen <laughs> i don't think I, I i'm not i'm skeptical about that <laughs> but uh, i mean how is that possible that's my question and and be able to get profits out of that um i'm not so sure about that i think you can get high quality <laughs> at a higher cost uh, and make profits from that mm. but uh, on the other side, on the flip side, you have uh, in of this K-shaped development, you have uh, niche markets that uh, need to be catered to. But the problem is that there are issues with products not being available to actually meet the demand of this uh, niche market. And so you get this decline in, 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 in dividends, let's say, for, for this market. So this one goes the other way this this line or this leg of the k goes down so it keeps the k balanced in a way mm-hmm. while the other k the other side of the k increases where people are going for high quality but at a lower price mm. um then businesses in that sec in that uh, category they do make profits um i mean there is an example here of uh, the from the national sugar and alcohol commodity fair uh, that was held in 20 in 2022 where their data shows that uh, the, the purchase volume of ultra high end baijiu with prices of more than 2 thousand yuan showed little impact uh, impact of about 12 percent after the spring festival but the data of the purchase volume with the prices of 500 up to 2000 yuan um, declined declined by seven percent or 20 percent after the spring festival and the data shows the the price of 100 yuan um increase significantly that they saw a jump of about 69 percent so that's close to 70 percent and this means that the mid-range baiju has large inventory high uh, pressure and weak sales and so there's an example of um, how this k-shape develops some people are lucky i would say (laughs) (laughs) if uh, if uh, people if people prefer your product the taste of it you might actually hit a gold mine there and uh, you see greater dividends from your product. But if you are selling um, poor quality, but at a higher price, then you are, 
you're supposed to rethink your strategy, maybe, and your ingredients. <laughs> well, I think that the idea of a change in strategy, we're talking about something as specific as um, the catering industry, but I think just generally any kind of big historical shift like this is going to require a lot of change, right? And change is pretty scary. And I think that businesses that are unable to adapt to change in any sense are going to suffer. They're, and the, um, the business, and this is just natural, though, because this this is nothing new. And this has happened between other consumption eras as well. So I think this is just quite a natural progression, which isn't going to be comfortable for everybody, but definitely going to be very profitable for those businesses that do adapt and new ones will sprout up in in their places. Yeah. Well, when I look at the Chinese market or just a market that's big enough with diversified needs, then I suppose it's finding your niche and make it super good and attract people. And that is basically the secret to success. Because when you look at China, Often when we say, oh, you know, that's like a pretty subcultural thing. It only exists on the periphery. And then when you look at the number, it's like 20 million people. They prefer this product or this type of lifestyle or something. So um, finding that niche and really honing your skills and capturing that market, I think, is really key here. And one thing that kind of stood out for me in this report was... um, Apparently, the lipstick effect, you know, what we think about cosmetics when this term comes up, but it also has shown um, its sort of characteristics in the uh, catering business as well. So basically, what it means is that um, without spending a lot of money, but on something that would make you feel better. And that is something that people would like to do after the pandemic. And even with um, restaurants, catering, um, the dining experience, people are falling for this as well. And I, I find that to be kind of interesting. So there are some challenges that remain in the catering and restaurant business and um There are some of these new developments that we've spoken about today and we'll always bring you the latest trends and what's going on here in China. You're listening to Roundtable. Coming up, a late renowned wuxia novelist has won a copyright lawsuit against a fan fiction writer. What does this mean for fan fiction, fan art in general? Once upon a time, in a land not so very far away. Stories were told of the brave and the bold. The whole court fell silent to hear what the great warrior Mulan might ask for. Of mighty deities and powerful immortals. Immediately, the shimmering skin started to grow before his eyes. Of fated love and love sanctified. In dawn's golden light, New Lang said, Marry me. Of great journeys across fantastical landscapes. So the cat and the mouse climbed on the dog's back, and the dog swam across the broad river. In the company of friends and enemies and unimagined beasts. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> Good to see you. Of ordinary folk with tantalising stories to tell. Heroes and heroines all. It's incredible. How did you do that? Tales of sad sacrifice and victories snatched from the jaws of defeat. Stories of the wise, the accomplished and the quick of mind. 5,000 years of amazing Chinese folk tales. You'll find Chinese Folk Tales Season 3 wherever you discover your favourite podcasts. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Pearl in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Coming up, fan fiction has enjoyed soaring popularity in recent years, much of which can be attributed to increased accessibility accredited to the internet. Can a lawsuit upend the rapid growth of fan fiction and fan art? We discuss. Is there a fine line between fan fiction, fan art, and finding yourself sued? And we share with you what's made us happy this week in Roundtable's Happy Place. Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcasts. And please keep sending us your comments, thoughts, and questions to EZFMRoundtable at Foxmail.com. Your voice could be featured on the show in our Roundtable's Heart to Heart segment. Audio clips are preferred, but emails will do. We would love to have a heart to heart with you. Now on Roundtable as we continue today's discussion. The estate of revered wuxia martial arts novelist Louis Cha Leung Yong, widely known for his pen name Jin Yong, has won a copyright lawsuit against Yang Zhi, a fan fiction writer who used the names of more than 60 popular characters found in the works of the late wuxia author. The Guangzhou Intellectual Property Court ruled that the defendant Yang's 2002 novel, There They Were, known as in Chinese, constitutes copyright infringement and unfair competition. The court ordered Yang and his publishers to pay 1.88 million yuan or 270,000 US dollars to Cha's estate. Further, if Young's disputed novel is ever republished, the proprietors of four of Jia's novels, The Legend of the Condor Heroes, that's She Diao Yingxiong Zhuan, Demi Gods and Semi Devils, that's Tianlong Babu, The Return of the Condor Heroes, Shen Diao Xia Lu, and The Smiling Proud Wanderer, Xiao Ao Jianghu, will also receive 30% of royalties. So, yeah, this is a big deal for Jin Yong's fans and those who read wuxia novels, and it's sometimes seen as a shared language of all Chinese speakers around the world. And I'm curious if you guys have come across this kind of uh, genre of literature before, and what's your initial thought when you saw, wow, there is this lawsuit that's garnering attention right now? Pearl, maybe you can go first? Well, personally, I've never heard of uh, this novel before. But looking at the story and uh, how this case uh, developed, it does sound like a clear uh, copyright infringement for me because mm. uh, this fan 
used the names of the characters uh, from the author's work. And, uh, you know, authors don't like to have their work developed in a way that is outside what they want the work to develop. And they also want to have control over their work and uh, the property uh, that they create, their, their intellectual property. Um, so it does make sense that this matter went to court and... Um, I think it was fair for the fan to lose this case. Yeah, so the names were used by this uh, defendant uh, and also the personality traits of the original characters written by Jin Yong have also been copied, but the entire story setting is completely different. But anyhow, the judge uh, has ruled in that sense. But it means that the court did find in some mm-hmm. infringements in, yes. in how this yes. um, fan used these names. And these it's not just the names. names. Yes. And uh, maybe part of the stories from yeah, storylines yeah. from the books. So the fan was in the wrong, as the court found. And it should serve as a, a warning to other fans. I mean, I'm not against fan fiction. I feel that if you feel a certain way about uh, how your favorite story is developing from your author or your your tv series that you're following you you should maybe try your your hand at you know writing your own storylines but be careful not to break the law yeah the copyright laws just be careful about that, that that's definitely a, an important part of this whole discussion and let me just offer you one little more piece of the uh, story that is this defendant Yang Zhi. He apparently he was the um, wealthiest author in China in uh, 2015, or he was amongst the most well-off authors in this country. He received 32 million yuan. That's less than five million U.S. dollars. Was that from the same work? Not from that. We well, don't know because he has other. Books too. Okay. So, but also another thing key to this lawsuit is obviously that the fen- the defendant made a lot of money from it, profiting from it, and there's that too. So, Josh, now you've got the whole picture. Now, tell us what you think about this. I think it's a really interesting conversation, and as a musician myself who creates music, and we have these conversations all the time about intellectual property and what is and is not okay where is the line it's going to be a never-ending conversation i think and it's super complex it's a real gray area and there's always loads of legal battles most big musical artists and writers have either been or are currently perpetually embroiled in some sort of copyright lawsuit if you look at almost any of them you'll find that they all they are or they have been either accused of stealing something or somebody has stolen their stuff i mean there's numerous examples i can give you um harry potter jk rowling the author of the harry potter series actually in 2002 she sued the author of a harry potter lexicon for copyright infringement, arguing that the lexicon copied large portions of her work without permission. The lawsuit was ultimately settled out of court, but it really um, demonstrates that even something as big as Harry Potter, you know, which has been so, it's influenced people so vastly. I don't know if this author in these books that you're talking about, I'm a little bit familiar with it, but if they're as wide reaching as Harry Potter was comparably in the West, but Harry Potter, 
I think it's just too big personally to, you know, you have to let people copy it somehow, this idea of it, because it's just so ingrained into everyone's life. I, I, maybe it's because I'm British, and <laughs> I, you know, I'm not sure. But yeah, I, I think yes. it's super complex. My personal feelings uh -huh. on it, we can talk about those if you like, maybe a bit later, but that's my immediate reaction to it. Definitely. Okay, and please allow me to jump in and I need to mm. offer you what Jin Yong means to the fans and the many, 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 many Chinese people around the world who have read his books growing up and had our mothers and fathers read his books and this wuxia story verse created by Jin Yong is in the eyes of so many Chinese people bigger, wider, and deeper than the Marvel comic universe. Wow. And this man, he, I believe he published 15 different literary works, each comprised of multiple volumes of books. And it's just a vast universe that he has created. And it's really amazing when you think about this, um, how one person can do that. And sometimes people have been sort of offering a comparison to Jin Yong as, you know, sort of like China's um, Shakespeare or, or somebody along those lines, you know, certainly huge for Chinese people. And therefore, it's certainly in our lexicon when you throw out these names and titles um, created by Jin Yong, and then immediately people know what kind of person you're talking about. And these characters that he's created and all these... Uh, storylines that he's created, it almost becomes a shorthand for a certain type of people, a certain type of type of temperament, or a certain case scenario for people. And in Chinese, just with those, use that term, throw out that term, and then people know immediately what you are getting at. For example, when we say Guo Jing, that's somebody who's very loyal and, you know, top in his uh, martial arts skills and maybe not particularly that bright, but a really good dude. And that's the kind of persona that comes to mind. Anyhow, so... That's what Jin Yong is like for a lot of people. And then no wonder, just like Harry Potter, just like what Jin Yong created, just like, you know, uh, Game of Thrones, you know, some of these really big franchises for people. And there are bound to be fans who love it, who wish that maybe the characters would have interacted a little bit differently or, you know, how the whole series could have ended a little bit differently. Remember Game of Thrones really, you know, antagonized a lot of people with the se uh, the final season finale as such. So tell us a bit more about what do you see or how do you define fan fiction? And also, apparently there is a global popularity to towards it. Well, firstly, uh, let's look at what's the definition online. According to hubpages.com, fan fiction has a pretty broad definition as it is inspired by popular books, shows, movies, comics, music, as we've just mentioned, um, games, and even real people. And fanfiction is simply made up of stories that characters uh, and or settings written by the fans of uh, an original work rather than the creator. And I also found uh, another definition mm -hmm. from... Um, author Francesca Copper, who's a, a lit, uh, lit professor, she says it's creative material 
okay, uh, that fans write and use they use characters from works who holds uh, copyrights and but they do not get I guess permission or do not seek permission from the person that holds uh, copyrights to this work and so that's another brief uh, explanation of what fan fiction is and mm-hmm. we've just mentioned a couple of um, examples Harry Potter Star Trek and the main our main Jin case Yong. that we spoke yes. about <laughs> how you know these fans go overboard in trying to continue the story uh, as they go as they you know still feel robbed maybe by the writers uh, that hold the right the copyrights to the works so they start to form their own little communities even um, Francesca Coppas helped to start an online community that uh, encourages people to write um, fan fiction yeah and uh, but then also it protects them from being sued because they they use pseudonyms and they don't actually they don't use the names that are in 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 the original works so it, it's a community that kind of protects them from uh, being sued by the original authors of uh, whatever literature that they are pursuing yeah. and um, so I think that's more that's safe for people who are into this kind of work just changing the names is that enough though you know let's say if okay peter potter you know and and then he he has a scar on his forehead he's a son to wizards and uh you know and then i write obviously this story very poorly (laughs) but it's pretty obvious where i sort of get my ideas from and Mm. yeah and and you know supposedly I'm a big fan and uh, as long as I don't sell my work then I suppose I'm off the hook I guess but but it's pretty yeah. obvious that I'm copying drawing inspirations so to speak from an obvious source yeah absolutely <laughs> I mean and everybody's stealing from everybody I mean it depends how far you want to take it and I guess that there's also a time limit on these things I mean the even even the concept of a paragraph, a chapter, a book, a novel, fantasy, the idea of a wizard, all of these things have been created beforehand. And it depends how, this is why it's so complicated because what constitutes intellectual property? What does it mean? And I guess that what people try and do these days is try and get some sort of patent for that intellectual property. Music is especially complex with these things Mm. because music is really abstract. And there's only a certain amount of notes and chords that are used in pop music, in Western music anyway, because there's different notations and stuff. But so many songs, you've probably seen some of these awful medley videos on YouTube or something (laughs) where someone plays three chords and sings like 20 pop songs, right? And they just keep going and they do it within like two minutes. Oh, it's ghastly, but still it really, it shows how, you know, how oversaturated and Um, overused these chords are so where do we go from here I don't think that anyone really has claim to anything to be honest but then again if I wrote um, a song and someone stole my lyrics and that song became more popular Mm. I think I'd be pretty annoyed of course yeah I would be too yeah even if let's say you know somebody else comes up with a similar format of a show uh three people talking (laughs) Oh, immediately gets on my nerves. (laughs) 
sometimes fan fiction can give birth to something great. If I may give you an example from way back, uh, more than 200 years ago, well, here in China, you know, one of the great four works, literary works, The Dream of Red Mansions, it has 120 chapters. The first 80 chapters were written by Cao Xueqin, who is hailed as one of the most important writers in Chinese history. And everybody seems to agree, even till today, that the first 80 chapters of this book is the best. And then the guy stopped writing. So the last 40 chapters were thought to have been written by another author, Gao E, which to some degree could be regarded as writing fan fiction of a literary giant, Cao Xueqin. And even till today, you know, we study this book in our Chinese literature class and uh, it's considered such such an amazing piece of Chinese literature. So if you give it time, and then, well, back then there wasn't really all this talk about, oh, intellectual property protection. But if you give it time, it's like, wow, so maybe these two guys together, they wrote something that is forever lasting and worth reading, uh, even hundreds of years later. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's part of keeping the original work alive, you know, ensuring that future generations, you know, get the best out of the story. If the second guy or the fan is really good at writing, then that's the benefits of, you know, having this work because this other or the second author is uh, really talented and uh, really in touch in touch with the I guess with the story to know enough about it and uh, how to develop it in a way that is satisfactory to its um, audience and so I think that, that those are like the benefits of um, having a fan that is engrossed in the story and uh, you know, wants it to live on, and uh, and so I think, yeah, we can look at <laughs> look at that as a positive uh, thing that happened there. Yeah. But yeah, we yeah. just discussed some of the negative <laughs> sides uh, we did. to this um, fan fiction trend. Yeah, and even till today, there are some perfectionists or just hardcore fans of Cao Xueqin who think that oh, the f- last 40 chapters of the dreams that good are are rubbish really dare i say (laughs) oh man yeah so there's definitely that and um what do you think that a high profile lawsuit like this one that's kind of putting a cap on what fan fiction can do especially and specifically when fan fiction is made to profit you know to to rake in a lot of money so what is it gonna do to sort of this uh, fan fiction activity in general i think it just serves as a caution to people going forward how to handle uh this type of um literature and if they want to pursue fan fiction then they know where the line is in terms of copyrights they know to respect the original work but also, you know, try to pay tribute or homage to the to the author of the original work by developing a story that does not, you know, infringe the laws. I think uh, going forward, 
people will be mindful of what they of how they handle the work that they love mm-hmm. uh, without yeah breaking the law. Yeah, and also paying up a big hefty financial penalty uh, for breaking the law in this particular case. Um, Josh, do you think that maybe in a way this lawsuit could potentially curtail the sort of space for creativity when it comes to fan fiction? I guess when it comes to fan fiction, it's definitely going to discourage people from writing it for sure. But on the flip side of that, I guess that when it comes to creativity, I guess the argument is that this encourages people to be more creative and, (laughs) you know, by default, avoid being sued. And I think that actually there's a lot of people, there's millions of fan fictions that could be sued and millions of pieces of intellectual property that have violated copyright laws. The only difference is that they haven't become popular enough for the author or the publisher to care about, right? Mm. Um, So I think this is often the case as well. But yeah, when it comes to stifling or curtailing the creativity of fan fiction writers, I think probably yes. I mean, if I was gonna, (laughs) if I suddenly had an urge to write some fan fiction and copy this writer somehow, I'd probably be deterred from doing so after this. Um, court case, yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, remember, Fifty Shades of Grey was originally a Twilight fan fiction. Um, and then before its publication, changed the names, changed the title, changed everything that might get the author sued. And it's a big hit that spawned into a few Hollywood movies and possibly more fan fiction. Who knows? Coming up next, welcome to Roundtable's Happy Place. Delivery, delivery, delivery. What is it? Happiness from Round Table. It's the hour of Round Table with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Pearl in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. So, Pearl, take it away. What's your happy place this week? Painting and pencil drawing. I really enjoy doing that whenever I feel stressed. <laughs> I just, you know, go to my paint box and take my take out my paintbrush and my, you know, set and just start painting. So I really started painting during COVID lockdown and but pencil drawing is something that I always knew I I had a little bit of a talent for. Nice. But, you know, it's better for me right now as I'm still trying to, you know, hone the craft to follow videos on YouTube and so on and and just copy that and see how I can improve on my technique especially so yeah I've been doing a lot of that and uh, I really enjoy that that's fantastic that's kind of like a soothing happy place it's calming very nice thank you very much Pearl Josh what's your happy place this week Well, I've been trying to get better with my hands. Um, I guess a lot of my happy places seem to be connected in some way, which isn't surprising because (laughs) I guess that's who I am. But um, one thing I'm trying to get better at is working with my acoustic guitar. And somebody who does this, um, this kind of craftsman, um, this kind of carpentry is actually called a guitar luthier. That's the terminology for it. And this is basically a skilled craftsman that specializes in the construction, repair, maintenance of guitars. And recently I was playing a performance and I needed an acoustic guitar. 
and I purchased one from a friend. They'd had it sort of sitting in the corner of their room for years and years, and they hadn't really touched it. And it's a really beautiful, small Taylor guitar, which is quite a famous brand, but it, it hadn't really been taken care of that well. And it had traveled a lot. And due to the Beijing weather, um, obviously acoustic guitars are made of wood. Wood is very porous and it's very sensitive to weather. Beijing weather, as we know, is very dry, which is really terrible for guitars. Mm -hmm. It can make the wood crack and bend and often they're irreparable afterwards. So I got this one and it was salvageable, but the neck was bowed, which Ooh. means that it was sort of um, bent a little bit inward and I needed to straighten it out. So usually I would go to a guitar luthier and I just give it to them. And as a professional guitarist, it's not great. I should really know how to do this. But I said to myself, no, I'm going to work with some of my friends close to me and we're going to fix it together. And since then, I've started to try and work with it myself to improve it. And it's been really fulfilling, obviously. And um, I'm learning and my guitar sounds better. It plays better. And it's very therapeutic. It's mm -hmm. almost again many of i use this word a lot sort of meditative and calming to to go through this yeah. process and zone out and work with the wood yes that's my happy place that's what people want you know people go to great lengths in finding their own soothing happy place i went to see a concert in fact a mayday Tian concert it was so difficult to get a ticket so this band has been holding Concerts here in Beijing, six concerts on three weekends, selling over 300,000 tickets in the Beijing Bird Nest National Stadium, and all tickets were gone in a matter of seconds. So I was there and uh, sharing the space with 50,000 fans in the bird nest for one purpose, to have a great time for this one band. We were there for more than three hours. And this is, in my opinion, a little bit rare in China when everybody just stands up from the first song to the end. And it was such a great experience. Yeah, with the first guitar strong, it, it opens the floodgates of a reservoir of emotions and feeling and pent-up emotions after COVID. And it was just so great, I think, to have that sense of belonging and knowing that, oh, everybody else is here singing their lungs out <laughs> uh, just as you are. And I think that communal experience and realizing that, oh, there are these people, you know, we're of the same feather as it feels. And it's just a great, great feeling. And what a outlet for angst of, um, you know, all the stuff that that I feel has been just trapped inside of me and uh, to let it out with another 50,000 people. And I just really enjoyed that. And um, I want to share with you one of Wu Yetian or Mayday's songs here, one of the best songs about friendship, keeping you company when you're feeling down and also up. And we'll end this loneliness together is what this song is about. Everything's going to be all right. Tomorrow will be fine. On the way out. Here is Wu Yetian's Gudan or Loneliness Terminator. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you so much, Josh Cotterell and Pearl, for joining the discussion. I'm He Young. We'll see you next time. Bye.
蓝灿烂，嘿，地球继续转。Everything will be alright, tomorrow will be fine， 有我的陪伴，你再也不孤单。保持乐观，请你把头抬起来，帮你把勇气加满。有我这样完美的朋友，还不快等？心情好，心情。